Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. It's uh, the 1st of March today and some pretty scary stuff is going on in the world. Not too sure how I feel about it. Well, I mean, I, I know how I feel about one part of it. Um, but the actual fear of bad stuff happening on a personal level, it's not something that I've really experienced a whole lot in my life, I'm happy to say, but it's um, it's definitely here at the moment, even if it's in a slightly abstract sort of nuclear weapons related sense. So um, I imagine many of you are feeling similar. Um, I imagine there's some of you who are more directly involved in what's going on in Ukraine. And all I can say to you is you have all my thoughts and prayers Um well, if I was a religious man, maybe my prayers, but certainly my thoughts and um, yeah, everything going out to you. So I mentioned on last week's show that I was going to be doing an NFT and kind of events obviously overtook that last week. So what I'm doing now with that NFT is I'm using it as a um, bit of an opportunity to raise some money for relief charities. I haven't completely decided what charity I'm going to be donating to yet, but there's a Auction starting today, 1st of March, for 24 hours. Apologies if this is slightly late notice, um, short notice, but, you know, needs must. So um, it's on Catalogue Works. Uh, if you go to catalogue.works, all the info is there. And if you grab me on Twitter, you can have full details of the actual auction and 100% of the primary sale price of that NFT, which is of the Scuba's on-chain mix of my Hang 10 SCB track. 100% of a um, primary sale of that will go to the charity that I eventually get around to picking. So, yeah, I um, you know, not able to make too much of a direct impact on what's going down, clearly, but hopefully we can... Um, make some money for a good cause doing this. So the show must go on, as they say. And uh, this week, we have none other than Machine Drum on the show. He is someone who I've worked with on Hot Flush, of course, through his uh, Sepakure project with Praveen, aka Braille. I've released original Braille tracks as well. But um, Travis Stewart as Machine Drum has done all sorts of cool stuff on various different labels, most notably his series of albums on Ninja Tune and his collaborations with Jimmy Edgar and many other people, which we discuss at length in this forthcoming conversation that I have for you today on the Not A Diving podcast. So, um, as usual, I'll be back later after the 
conversation to talk about releases. There are some releases, a couple of them this week, in addition to that NFT. And apart from that, I must beseech you to leave us a review or a rating. That really does help. I forgot to do so last week. <laughs> but uh, it genuinely does help the show. And we are slowly building an audience here. So um, the, the more of those we get, the better and easier and more effective that will be. So please do that. And finally, if you want to say anything about the show, get us in the Discord. There's a link in the show notes or grab me on Twitter. But yeah, Discord is kind of a fun way of doing it. So um, yeah. Let's um, get on with it, shall we? I think I've done enough talking. Without further delay, here is Machine Drum. Machine Drum, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Paul? Or Scuba Paul. You can call me Travis. <laughs> All right, okay, let's just do Travis and Paul for the, for the purposes of this. Yeah. Um, now that we've done the introductions. Um, right, so... <clears throat> I want to I jump right in with some weighty stuff, some meaty stuff. Um, so it's with recording on Thursday, the 24th of February, and Russia has just invaded Ukraine. Mm. And I've been basically sort of reading everyone, everyone in music's kind of reaction. Everyone's got a reaction on social media. There's a lot of kind of like outpouring of understandable, um, some emotional re- reactions. And there's some, you know, there's some like pontificating and there's some like, you know, um, there's, there's a wide range of, of stuff. And it just got me thinking about the way we all, I guess, express our wider like values and our wider, wider politics into our music and through our kind of communication with the outside world. And I just wondered, what, how do you feel about bringing politics into music and the way you present yourself generally? I mean, yeah, it's a pretty heavy way to start it off, but I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like in the past, I tended to weigh in a lot more than I do now. Now I'm almost more addicted to the discourse. Um, but even even with this specific instance of you know the invasion, I caught myself looking at you know what people are saying, and and then it just at one point I was like, I don't, I don't really give a fuck what anybody thinks right now. This is it's too fresh. It's pretty heavy, pretty insane what's happening and to instantly like i i just had to check myself because it is sort of a weird addiction i have to like watch what people are saying but i don't even reply or anything i'm just like sitting there looking at the threads and and just like weird addiction of like seeing people argue about different sides of things um but yeah i mean i i feel like i i tend to stay out of um any any world goings ons like uh and and try to keep things pretty neutral more or less lately um i i i feel like especially with social media it's not the best place to have these heavy-handed kind of conversations and you know short short bursts of texts and even if you are going to do like a long thread like you know it's kind of like you're screaming into the ether and you're either going to have you know the um like uh, people on your side or people against you and everybody's sort of fixed in their positions and unless you're ready to dedicate an entire day <laughs> to yeah. talking to one specific person and changing that one specific person's mind you know maybe it, it it'll happen but yeah i mean it just seems like we're so divided on everything in the uh 
past few years and it just seems to be escalating more and more. I don't know. It's it's interesting because so you... oh go ahead. Cool. So no, oh, I was just gonna I was just gonna ask, um I mean, has that has that been a, a big change then for you personally? Because obviously um I think the way social media has kind of shifted quite a lot in, in in 10 years it's been a while since there was a shift but I think there was a shift at some point whereby things did get a lot more polarized and it became a, a lot more difficult to to uh, to kind of express I feel like there's, there's a lot more scrutiny now but let me let me also um ask you a peripheral question which is sort of related to this which is I mean I know you've felt quite strongly about the whole nft thing Mm. And I wonder, is that something that maybe a few years ago you'd have been a bit more public about your feelings on, do you think? Because I mean, you, I kind of, I kind of, I think I know what you feel about it, but it's like, you know, you haven't really gone full public with that. Yeah. I mean, it's possible I would have uh, had a bit more back and forth with people on social media about it. Um, but really, uh, it's, it's something I've honestly lost sleep over <laughs> just because I'm, I tend to, try to understand both sides of an argument. Um, and especially with something like this, it's so complicated and um, it, it's definitely not a black and white kind of issue or, you know, subject. Uh, I I tend to see both sides, which keeps me split in the middle, which in a way is a good thing because, you know, I think there's a spectrum between wrong and right, you know, like things uh, are a little bit wrong and a little bit right sometimes. And um, I I feel like everybody, the the way the discourse is going on in regards to NFTs is like choosing sides. And um, I mean, I guess this could be a take that I would have, but it really doesn't really push things forward or, or, or backward in, in any sense by me just stating that, uh, I understand both sides, you know, because nobody asked. <laughs> so it's not it's not really up for me to just say like, hey, uh, I understand both of your sides and um, I'm just going to stay right here where I am stuck in the middle. I mean, the center is a bit of a lonely place to be right now, I feel like. It really is. It really is. Right. So let's, um, let's go back a bit then, um, kind of zoom out a little bit. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, we've been talking about on the show with various different people um, has been various kind of introductions to dance music and electronic music. And I think pretty much everyone I've had so far have been people who grew up in big cities and had kind of that immediate thing. Um, but you didn't grow up in a big city, do you? I think I'm right in saying that. Yeah, you're correct. You're from North Carolina, is that right? Yes, that's true. Uh, spent most of my years in Hickory, North Carolina. Closest major city was Charlotte. Um, spent a bit of time. Uh, if I was doing any record shopping, it would have been there or Chapel Hill. And okay, so so what was what was the what was the, the initial way in? I guess what was the hook that that got you into this stuff? I mean, tracing it all the way back, I would say a lot of it was MTV in the 90s, honestly. Um, you had artists like, huge artists like Nine Inch Nails and and Prodigy um, that had, you know, videos on d- like daytime mainstream, like um, 
hours, you know, for for MTV. But then they would have shows like uh, 120 Minutes and MTV's Amp, which was actually a huge thing for me because they ended up showing showcasing a lot of more left field kind of electronic music stuff that definitely wasn't going to be played during the day by any means. Uh, and it was once a week, I believe it was at um, midnight on Saturdays, something like that. Uh, and what kind of stuff was getting played on that? I don't think I ever, I ever saw that. Uh, it played everything from Future Sound of London to Cold Cut, uh, Altecker, yeah, the, the early Aphex Twin videos, uh, the, uh, what was the one, uh, uh, not, not come to daddy. Uh, I believe come to daddy was even on like daytime, uh, really? MTV. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, the cool, the cool thing about amp was they didn't have the traditional like artists song, song title, album title kind of, um, credits at the beginning of the video and the end of the videos. Uh, you had to wait until the end of the show and it would scroll up like each artist and song that was played. So I would sit there writing down the names of everything that played, hoping that I got it right. Because um, I remember uh, a, a big moment for me was seeing the video for All Techers, uh, uh Second Bad Viable, which was a Chris Cunningham video. It's like the sort of sur- surveillance footage of weird alien insects, k- robot kind of things. Um, and I just remember being blown away by it. Um, but all I ended up writing down was Autecker. So uh, I went to, <laughs> I went to like the nearest um, uh, record shops, like mega media center kind of thing uh, that did end up having an electronic section. Uh, and I remember buying their album amber first which was not the right one um and that's a good one though (laughs) it's 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 absolutely incredible but at the time i was i guess going back a little bit further my entry point into electronic music would have been um starting off with metal i think like i was really big into metallica bands like quicksand uh God, what else? Like Megadeth, stuff like that. And then um, I remember seeing a video for Ministry NWO, which hooked oh, me. You know, I, I literally had that on this afternoon. <laughs> you did? <laughs> crazy track. Yeah, I did. That, yeah. Literally. That's amazing. Yeah. that I remember instantly being amazed and was like, what is going on here? Like, this is the future. Um, and it was super political. Uh, you know, had it. And, I don't remember any any other videos like that at the time. Um, so, and again, like I believe Nin, uh, Nine Inch Nails was kind of popular at the time as well. But for some reason, there was something about Ministry that really spoke to me more. I think maybe it was the metal guitars on it. Uh, the, so this is like ninety three, ninety four sort of time. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Er, early nineties, I would say. Um, like maybe even before. Uh, 92 or something uh i like pretty hate machine era and nine inch now exactly um and then i i'm trying to remember how i found out about skinny puppy oh okay so do you remember a website called cdnow.com no (laughs) it was like (laughs) one of those old websites where you could order cds online and they had something that now we 
don't really think anything of. But um, at the time, for me, it was pretty groundbreaking. Uh, at the bottom of an artist, like an out, let's say I, I went to order Ministries Psalm 69, um, which NWO was on. At the bottom, it would have related artists, which you know, unless you had a a buddy who was into the same kind of music or or a local record store that carried a lot of that kind of stuff or, you know, a club scene or anything like that around you where, you know, people could put you on to stuff like that. I really didn't have anyone, you know, like the high school, I or I think I was even in middle school at the time. Uh, the, the school I was in, like probably the most um, out there music that kids were listening to was like Marilyn Manson or something like that, or even Nine, Nine Inch Nails, uh, a lot of grunge like Nirvana, um, Smashing Pumpkins, stuff like that, which I was also well into, of course. Um, but yeah, they, just having this related artist section at the bottom helped me discover so much. And um, I remember discovering Skinny Puppy. And then I remember I was like browsing Skinny Puppy CDs at a, a record store and some guy like older guy came up to me and was like probably wondering why this uh 12 year old kid was like r- rifling through industrial cds and he put me onto download which was um one like super obscure side project from skinny puppy and um i remember he was showing me a couple of different apex twin records i should get and so yeah the pathway would be metal to industrial and then industrial into electronic uh, music, which is why that song by Autucker, tri- uh, Second ba- Bad Vibel, really spoke to me because it's super industrial sounding, really aggressive. There's no real melody in the song. And so <laughs> to my surprise, when I bought Amber and it's like really beautiful kind of ambient techno stuff, it didn't it I was a little let down um <laughs> okay, yeah. but but of course, revisiting it a few years later, I gained so much respect for it, but yeah, so there was m t v s amp, and then you know i was uh I forget how I got introduced to i r c but i r c is basically like the earliest form of internet chatting, I believe it stands for internet relay chat. And oh, right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that's just, yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that in a while. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically there's a bunch of different servers you could join and you could just type in the channel name, which was a hashtag. And then you type in your favorite music group. And chances are there was a, a chat room for that. Uh, you know, similar to, I guess, AOL uh, online, America online like chat rooms, but definitely way more obscure kind of stuff going on. And you could do file sharing and, and all of that. Um, so yeah, I remember just joining a few different rooms on IRC and finding out even more music that way. And that's, um, subsequently how I ended up signing my first record deal too with Merck records was, um, there was, a you know, a, a community, I, b- I believe that it, at first it was um yeah channel idm and then some uh some people from that same channel started a few other like more obscure channels and 
There's also like the tracker scene, which is how I first really started getting serious about producing music. They had a whole community on there where you could share uh, your sessions, essentially, which were super small, you know, depending on what samples you were using. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty mind-blowing, like how much I learned just through this one uh, internet service. Um, Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, um, those were those were definitely different days. I mean, I remember having sort of vague equivalents with um, uh, the dubplate.net forum, um, mm. which was um, a little bit later, um, and I was in a slightly different position to the one that you're describing that you're in, um, just in terms of like the development of what I was doing. But yeah, those those kinds of things can be can be really valuable, actually, extremely valuable and super useful, and in terms of meeting people as well as discovering music. Yeah, I mean, especially if you don't really have any options, you know, like I definitely got along with a a lot of people in in my school and, you know, we would play each other music and discover music together. But yeah, there's just this big void of um, people like friends that were into electronic music, Um, again, apart from Nine Inch Nails, Daft Punk, Air stuff like that um and yeah, the, the big stuff basically. yeah yeah the, the stuff that was getting press exactly fat boy slim um prodigy all of that but yeah i i i just had this like the first time i felt a sense of community and discovery was through the internet and irc yeah so was so was the first like big city you moved to new york am i right in thinking that uh, I mean, unless you count Orlando as a big city, that was the the first major move uh, out of North Carolina for me. Okay, so tell us about that then, because I'm I actually never been to Orlando, but I mean, it's not it's definitely not New York in terms of its kind of cultural uh, no. <laughs> surroundings, right? No, definitely not. Um, I mean, unless you think of Disney World as a huge cultural kind <laughs> of um, epicenter. Uh, no, I, I w- went to school there uh, at Full Sail, which is um, sort of like one of the most popular audio engineering kind of media arts schools in the U.S. Um, to the point where I believe, no, uh, yeah, I, I found out about it initially looking like at an ad in Rolling Stone magazine. And then I ended up meeting someone I, I I did go to university in uh, North Carolina for one semester as a music major, um, but uh, I ended up dropping out halfway through just because it wasn't for me. Um, just because the school was small, the people I was meeting that were graduating uh, with the music major were going on to either do more schooling or teaching, teaching or um, you know uh, assisting with the a high school concert band or something like that it wasn't really uh the path that i saw for myself so i remember meeting uh this guy that had just graduated from full sail and he was speaking really highly of it and um so yeah i I basically spent the next year and a half um working odd jobs um saving up to move down there basically like matched the tuition with my parents like paid paid half and half but yeah so that that's what brought me down to um that weird 
place in Florida. <laughs> and had you already put out your first record? Because I'm, I'm fairly sure you, you had your first thing out when you were about 19. Is that right? Yeah, I had released my first album when I was still in high school, uh, my senior year of high school. Uh, it came out on Merck Records, which, yeah, I ended up meeting Gabe, uh, who runs Merck, through IRC. And uh, yeah, we, we had formed a relationship over the years. I'd been sharing my music with them for a long time and uh, early machine drum demos. But this uh, particular album was under my Syndrome uh side project or i guess it was my main project at the time yeah when did when the machine drum first come into your head then did you did, was that always going to be the main project or was <laughs> what was the kind of like pattern there i think i was more interested in this left field kind of autecker influenced like bizarre glitchy sounding stuff that wasn't necessarily it was it was it was almost genreless in a way i mean of course at the time the the term IDM was being thrown around, which you know, it 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 became inevitable at one point that you had to label yourself that uh, one way or another. But anyhow, um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I was making loads of the syndrome kind of material um, that was you know like glitchy, sometimes hip hop influence, but mostly just like. Yeah, just like weird kind of glitchy beats. And at the same time, I was making machine drum tracks that were more on the breakcore side of things that would meander into hip hop territory, um, maybe even some like cut up vocals. And Gabe was definitely interested in that, but he was, you know, kind of waiting to see me develop that a bit further before he ended up releasing the machine drum album in uh, 20, uh, 2001. Right, but with the um, with the first records, I mean that's like having <laughs> having stuff signed for the first time is is a huge deal for anyone, right? So it must have been significant for you. Yeah, it was it was wild because you know at the time I don't know I I didn't um, yeah it was it was pivotal for me because I you know I had fun making electronic music I, I had fun um, you know making beats in my bedroom and whatnot but I didn't I couldn't really relate to anybody you know, any of my friends in high school with the music and um, didn't really see what my future was going to look like until that album came out. And, you know, it was the first time I I really like saw this other level of respect from, you know, my peers. And it gave me a huge boost of confidence. And uh, e- even, you know, my relationship with my parents changed in a way where they saw that, you know, there was a legitimate future for me in music. Um, the fact that, you know, someone was pressed, you know, a thousand CDs and a thousand vinyl of, of, of my album. Oh, I mean, that's, that could be, that's a huge thing for parents, right? It's like outside, um, like validation. It's like, you know, it's actually a thing that can be a huge deal for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it, it got. To, I think the the real big turning point for my dad specifically was when I played at Safety in Numbers Festival in New York, and he ended up. Uh, the, the whole thing was uh, like with Safety in Numbers Festival was they were doing a Merck showcase uh, 
uh, for for Merck Records, and they weren't really paying anybody. They're like, sure, you could do a showcase, and we'll we'll book out the venue for you, but you know, we can't really pay anybody. You know, classic New York style. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so basically, I had to fund my way up there, and my dad was willing to help out only if he could come. So he ended up coming up with me on that on that first trip to New York and seeing that there was, you know, even though the venue probably only had maybe like 50 people at the show, just seeing that there was any sort of following for what I did uh, gave him, you know, a, a lot of hope and pride. And, and, and you know, he's, he started um, supporting me a lot more from that point on. And he's been super supportive ever since. And as my, my mom's been supportive since the very beginning, but, um, you know, it, ha- having that, um, validation from, from my dad specifically was, was also another key turning point for me, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's like, whenever that happens, cause I mean, for, actually for me, it took, took quite a bit longer. I mean, I was well deep into releasing records before I was taken remotely seriously by my parents, but, um, anyway, that's, that's another story. So having like having finished studying you i guess you moved to new york and that was a yeah. big thing right i mean moving to a new city and moving to moving to a new place like which is like very i guess culturally distinct right because new york's is i mean new york's new york it's um you know it doesn't need any introduction so so what was the what was it like getting your feet under the table as it were over there yeah i mean you know going back to that first show that I played in in New York I I knew in my heart that I was going to end up there one day I was just so fascinated by the fact that you know people were excited about the kind of music that I was making and that there was probably loads more to discover through that as well um so yeah you know by the point I had moved to New York I'd been living in Orlando uh for about 4 years and I'd gotten deeply involved in like a underground noise art rock kind of uh, scene there in Orlando, like a bunch of basically punk kids who were from Orlando originally that were kind of rebelling against this um, idea that most people have of Orlando, which is Disney World or Full Sail, which is very corporate. You know, the school that I went to was like, you know, sponsored by pro tools and uh, or uh, avid or whatever and they um or digi design uh and befriending these kids that were part of this like really um eclectic underground kind of art noise rock scene where everybody was forming bands with each other and i i was part of probably like three or four different bands you know uh at that time i i felt like i was really expressing myself in this new way that I hadn't been able to before in uh back in North Carolina. Uh that being said, there I I did have a part of me that wanted to work with vocalists and 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 kind of pursue this path of uh being a producer and I before this point I didn't even really understand I, I i of course i understood what a producer was but i didn't identify as a producer um i th- i considered myself more of a electronic artist or an instrumental beat maker or something like that i'd like 
work, working with vocalists uh, was something that started happening uh, toward the end of my years in Orlando. And I think a lot of that happened through Full Sail. You know, like mo- most of the students there uh, were into hip hop, R&B, and, uh, you know, uh, some of my classes, you know, had to do with vocal production and, and stuff like that. So it was interesting having those two kind of polar opposite kind of vibes going into what I was doing uh, at the time. So moving to New York uh, at the end of all of that was kind of perfect. I was, I was primed, I think, you know, and um, I already had a um, uh, some friends that lived there. So it wasn't like I was, moving somewhere and uh, just starting from scratch. You know, I played a few shows in New York at this point and had a friend base. So it didn't feel like, yeah, I was just diving into the deep end by any means. Yeah. I mean, New York at that point was like a super, super vibrant place musically. Um, I mean, I, I went over for the first time to play, I guess, 2005 and I mean, obviously I was doing the dubstep thing in the UK, but it was it was before the dubstep went anywhere in the UK, really. It was still forward once a month, um, as as I've discussed on this podcast before. Um, and it didn't seem like oh, yeah. it was moving. But like, I mean, like Dave Q started his dub war night and that's how we first kind of got into contact with each other through Alex Inside. So um, I guess my question is like, what were the what were the kind of main musical things happening in New York that, that resonated with you, I guess? Like what, what were the kind of inputs into your music at that point? Uh, I would definitely say dub war was huge for me. Um, and also uh, trouble and bass was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a party that Luca dropped the lime uh, and star eyes and um, a few other people uh, were doing. And it was just, it, it was kind of like are you familiar with trouble and bass yeah i never went to it but i was friendly with like matt shade tech and i knew drop the lime as well yeah. um so yeah it, that was that was definitely on my radar of cool cool shit that was going on in the city at that point yeah i mean you know it i think even before dub war i, I had gone to some trouble and bass parties that were i i think it was the first time i'd heard like uk influence music being played uh in, in a club in that way where it was the the whole night was about bass music you know it was about grime kind of two-step um uk garage stuff like that uh and yeah it was super exciting for me uh to to be part of that and actually inspired me to start throwing my own parties in new york because i did see a sort of gap there for the kind of music that I was making at the time, which was more on the glitch hop kind of side of things. Yeah, gl- glitch hop um, is, the, sorry to jump in, but like glitch hop is the term which just popped into my head, which I haven't heard for a long time. But that was a, yeah, that, that was a kind of, um, uh, <laughs> it was a kind of thing, a, a cool thing that was going on, which had a brief moment, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you. Uh, I guess in the UK it was being called wonky. I don't know. Like there was. Right. Uh, I never really associated those two things, but yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, there, there were. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely had their own things going on, but I, I saw some correlations just in the fact that it was left field, abstract hip hop. You know, made by seemingly electronic producers. You know, um, 
and and a lot of it was instrumental even you know I, I i think the fact that it was like leaning on the instrumental side of things where the the glitches and weird edits were kind of taking place of what would be a vocal in a way yeah 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 i mean it's stuff like but yeah i i sorry go on. Oh, i was just gonna say i i, I saw this gap there for uh, for this kind of music and so i started throwing my own parties called cassette um where initially it was more about just creating eclectic nights uh, that were kind of all over the place uh, genre-wise. Um, you know, having everyone from like the flashbulb to body language to I Emerge doing like a DMC style kind of uh, battle set to, um, you know, art installations. And it was kind of all over the place, but... At the time, I, I was really into, you know, performing with Ableton Live, and I was doing a lot of mashups, and and then started doing kind of back to back sets with other people in the night, and uh, where we would basically just all go into one mixer, all, and we were all using Ableton. We would kind of whisper to each other what the BPM was, and you know plug in the headphones into the queue and 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 basically keep hitting spacebar until it was synced up <laughs> basically um but that actually ended up becoming even more exciting for me and we we stopped doing these big showcase type events uh that we were doing in proper venues and started doing more loft parties and more illegal kind of rave style things in Brooklyn uh, where we'd have to rent a sound system or maybe the loft space already had one. Um, and we would just set up a long table and have, you know, three or four artists the whole night, but there was no real headliner. We would all just kind of go back and forth the entire night. Maybe I would start off the night just to kind of warm up the room. But yeah, it was it was so much fun doing that. And uh, it was it was really unique and Honestly, haven't haven't seen anything like it since. Obviously, seen back to back DJ sets um, or back to back to back to back kind of things and takeovers and whatnot. But specifically, the using Ableton to to do those uh, sort of sets was really magical because it allowed us to you know improvise with like loops and th- one person would throw an acapella over a, a beat that another person was playing, and uh, yeah, it was so much fun. Yeah, and I guess I guess there's no nowhere in Brooklyn to do that kind of thing anymore. Just on a kind of venue level, it was still in days where you where you could do it, like a like a lot like an illegal loft party in Brooklyn. I I have heard of plenty of illegal raves that had happened, especially during the pandemic. Um, but you know, I think those are that's definitely a younger kind of crew doing those things. Definitely uh, beyond um, any any of the crews that. I was fucking with back in back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting the whole the way the whole thing has changed, um, particularly particularly in Brooklyn. So, I mean, w- were you living in Brooklyn at the time? I was living um, in Fort Greene, Bed Stuy kind of area, um, Clinton Hill. Kind of going back, like my first landing spot was actually sleeping on the couch of in uh, Praveen Sharma's apartment. Who, yeah, uh, I uh, eventually ended up um, f- forming a, a Voltron type of 
a band with him and Suguen Chung. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So that that was my first place, and then I I was there for maybe like two months until I found my own apartment. And um, yeah. So how much of a how much of a thing was dubstep for you? Like, I mean, obviously, um, I mean, obviously, it was significant because of your subsequent musical output and the the kind of you know, your, your involvement in various different things. But like, I mean, like at what point did you, did it first kind of come onto your radar? And, you know, what was the kind of develop, development of it in your mind? Definitely Praveen had a big uh, part in playing me a lot of um, earlier kind of dubstep, like Mala and, um, you know, DMZ, Digital Mystics, stuff like that. Um, and, but you know, I think he was even playing me uh, some some more abstract stuff at the time too, which you know, uh, obviously the stuff that you were putting out um, it was like two five six two. Trying to think of what else. There's like vexed mm. uh, was like I was really resonating with um, the more abstract stuff per usual. <laughs> mm-hmm. Seems to be my my mo over the years. I mean, even just you know, quickly going back to the '90s, like. I missed, I missed jungle. I missed drum and bass, house music, all of, all of those things because I was exposed to Warp Records and <laughs> Aphex One and Autechre and Square Pusher and these like wild, just wild drum programming, glitchy kind of music like from such an early age that I couldn't even listen to anything that was remotely stripped down compared to that. Um, of course, now I've, I've love all that stuff but i think a, a similar thing happened with me and and dubstep uh where i was more so resonating with the the sort of post dubstep kind of stuff that was coming out even early james blake yeah um uh uh mount kimby stuff like that and um but i i do remember going to my first night at uh at dub war and truly understanding the weight of dubstep <laughs> and you know just like hearing it in the club on the proper sound system i was like okay this actually makes sense to me i love this shit i mean particularly particularly that early stuff really had to be heard in its proper setting yeah i mean the sound system i had at home was like some some really cheap well it was like decent set of bose speakers but i didn't have a subwoofer so anything that was you know going below a certain frequency wasn't really hitting me as hard and yeah i think yeah even with house music and and a lot of music that's like really just designed for the club experience I, i missed a lot of it and it didn't resonate with me until you know, a few years of living in New York and actually going out and experiencing club music properly for the first time. It even changed the way that I produced because at that point, bro, my, my songs would just start. There's no <laughs> intros. If you if you go back and listen to like pretty much everything leading up until like t- 2010, maybe, like the songs just fucking start. They're, they're just, we're, we're in it. <laughs> there, there's no like the the sections aren't even you know there's no breakdown there's there's nothing G- dj friendly about it and 
you know, I was wondering why DJs weren't playing my music. And <laughs> <laughs> and as, as I started getting more into DJ culture, I quickly understood why uh, DJs weren't really feeling my stuff as much. They, they were fans. They were like, oh, I love your stuff. Um, but, you know, it's kind of hard to play out. <laughs> I mean, that was a question I wanted to ask, actually, was... Um you know, what kind of shows were you going to in those first few years in, in New York? Like, what, what was the kind of stuff that was kind of pulling you in? Yeah, I mean, it was everything from Trouble and Bass. I think Trouble and Bass was like the earliest sort of parties that I would go to, for sure. And Cut was another one. I think it was loosely related to Trouble and Bass, uh, Cut Cut NYC. Uh, they, they were bringing in stuff like, um, like, like Ed Banger, Sirkin, more sort of like uh what would you call it like blog house kind of stuff uh electro electro clash stuff like that so if anything it was it wasn't even they're, they're almost like more like concerts in a way where uh, the, the djs were on stage it was more of like a headlining event as opposed to a club night but you know, when I discovered Trouble and Bass and Dub War, I became more interested in the idea of a club night versus like a headlining show with, you know, an actor on stage or whatever that we're all looking at. Mm. And and more into like a vibe created in a room where, you know, it's it's less about who's on stage and more about the sound system and, and the music coming out. I mean, that's the DJ culture element of it, I guess, which is a, it is a very different mindset going to a show which is um you know which doesn't have that direct i guess performance element around it when I mean, obviously djing is is a performance but it's it's it's, it's totally different to um it's totally different mindset and actually particularly in in new york has a, a real history of like dj culture which is you know where, where the dj box is actually not visible to the crowd you know so it's yeah it's a totally different thing so what was your what was the development of your music then around that? Like you were, you said you wanted to, you know, get into producing vocalists and you want to, you wanted to, um, you know, start expressing yourself in, in a, in a production way as well as a kind of instrumentalist way. So like, tell me how that, like that developed over those, those years. Yeah. So when I first moved to New York, um, a big reason I moved, uh, and I was, I figured, okay, now is the time is, uh, I started making, battle records with uh dj i emerge um and he was really interested but through the whole process of me making these battle records he was really interested in starting a label uh where it would be primarily focused on um working with vocalists but also just you know allowing me to express this um sort of producer role that i had started to to create um, and so I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I, I, I do know that he was definitely more connected with the, you know, hip hop scene and uh, like the rap scene, R&B scene in New York, uh, than I was. So he was definitely my entry point, uh, at that time. And he introduced me to, uh, Theophilus London, who through Theophilus, I ended up meeting Jesse Boykins, a third, uh, Mellow X, Mickey Fax, uh, who all all of those ended up featuring on my album One Two One Two, which I created between the years of two thousand six and two thousand nine, I believe. 
yeah, so that that was really the first time I had um, properly worked with vocalists and and even helped on the songwriting side of things and started to really cut my teeth in in that world. And um, like, was there like a was there like a hard inflection point at, like at any time? Like, because we talked about you know having getting your first kind of stuff signed and like having that kind of validation and getting to the point at which you're you know confident in your own work and like was there a point um because i know from you know from my stuff it was it happened quite late actually that i finally sort of like made peace with myself sort of creatively like was there was there a point at which that began to happen for you yeah i i really do think you know after doing this sort of weird abstract like art noise experimental music kind of phase in orlando and shifting into this more serious, like I could see where I could actually see a future in what I was doing, uh, working with vocalists. Um, that that was a, a a really big changing point, turning point for me. Where I think you know it was everything from doing the sessions and and being a, you know like engineering the sessions and and having the vocalists go in my closet and and record the vocals and like uh just learning how to like what to do and what not to do um especially with my limited setup that I had uh and and a lot of these artists were also just first starting off and were very young and so we're all kind of learning together which was really exciting and so was, I think between that and actually performing on stage with some of these artists, particularly Theophilus London. Um, you know, I, I would generally, I was his back, uh, his, uh, his DJ, uh, at shows and I would get on the mic and, you know, do ad libs and, and kind of be his hype man in a way, which was like a really interesting phase <laughs> of my career. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I was also like for the first time in my, in my life, like, focusing on fashion and like started like you know like being a bit more conscious of like what i was wearing and and especially being in in that scene you know like where fashion is is kind of um i mean it's very important i mean in new york in general you know that i I think had an influence on me started uh being more aware of what clothes and kind of shoes I was wearing and everything but especially you know being on stage with someone as flashy as Theophilus London uh uh made me start uh, paying more attention to to that kind of world yeah you've got to you've got to do your part right you can't just be <laughs> the guys out in there invisible yeah exactly uh but yeah I think you know just um having that excitement of being on stage and like hearing the songs that I produced with this rapper and seeing you know uh, um, an actual fan base start to form where we would see the same people at each show and and the crowds were getting bigger and bigger. Um, yeah, it was super exciting and validating for me. I mean, that's kind of an interesting contrast between um, having confidence in yourself, like technically in the studio and making music that you think is good and like, you know, that, that whole side of it. And then like the performance side and the kind of public face, which is totally different but um you know and, and can be challenging in a very different way you know psychologically i guess so h- how was that i mean how was that kind of development of you becoming more of a kind of you know your kind of personal profile growing and and, and all that side of it i think by this point I'd, I'd played loads of shows some big some small 
you know, doing more experimental, instrumental, glitch hop, IDM kind of stuff. Um, so I'd, I'd definitely gotten to a point where, you know, play, playing in front of people wasn't that big of a deal anymore. But I think it was more so just knowing that my music was accepted outside of that sort of niche underground electronic world, seeing that there was a more... I was basically, you know, being accepted into the mainstream mm. uh, somewhat, um, which for me, I felt was a bigger challenge than making crazy left field electronic music, you know, because um, I, I could do that all day. But making something that was not only accepted in the mainstream, but also something that I found exciting to listen to and and you know, my fans, fan base that I had had it up to that point was also into it. Um, that was the challenge for me. Uh, and, you know, to, to see it actually working out um, was, was super exciting. And of course, there was, you know, some people that basically anytime I would have any vocalist on a track, they basically thumbs downed it. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's that, that, that goes with the territory, I guess. I mean, there were always those people <laughs> like, with, with anything, right? Yeah. But I mean... Yeah, like, I, th I think God, maybe wait. that was the first point. Uh, yeah, that that was probably the first point I, you know, realized that I couldn't make everybody happy, especially if I was going to take this risk of making music in more of a pop uh, realm of things uh, that I was definitely going to piss some people off along the way. I mean, was that always like a musical challenge for you or was there ever a, a kind of element of, you know, wanting more exposure just for the sake of it? Because I mean, I think many, many people who, um, many producers have a kind of like sort of like slightly ambiguous relationship with, with fame, you know, and mm. it, it can be quite intoxicating, but also it's obviously got its downsides as well. So was, was, was that ever an issue for you or was that ever, to what extent was that kind of like in your mind, like present? It definitely wasn't the reason behind doing it wasn't this quest for fame by any means. Um, you know, I definitely had a taste of it by um, kind of injecting myself into that world and and seeing that you know it was about having a stage persona and like this idea of like oh you're a producer who do you produce and being able to like talk a whole different language and and you know getting a different sense of hype based off of that but I don't know like it was it was more just the excitement of the the challenge of of making music that would appeal to a broader fan base uh but also still excite me in in that way that I was able to you know express my experimental nature and and push things forward you know because you know I was hearing artists like uh like like Daft Punk like was probably one of the biggest examples for me of someone that could achieve you know fan bases that were very mainstream but also had a, a deep respect amongst you know electronic music producers that were more niche and uh yeah I was interested in in, in finding some kind of balance between my experimental upbringing and this more um yeah like mainstream kind of vibe so it's a it's an artistic challenge, basically, sort of creative challenge that you're setting for yourself there. 
Yeah, because I I felt like I could shit out experimental like weirdo tracks all day, and to to make something that was structured and and had you know a verse, chorus, pre-hook, all that stuff, uh, and and make it actually exciting for me was extremely challenging, um, and and also you know paying more attention to how the song is mixed and the, the vocal recordings and this whole world that basically I'd gone to school for, but had pretty much put to the side and, until yeah. this point. Um, Cause I was just a punk with a laptop who was making music and impulse tracker. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, the, the, the challenge was, was really what excited me the most about that, that uh, new adventure. I mean, you, were extremely successful you have been extremely successful continue to be extremely successful at that that thing so i mean and present and well i know that there has been a, a degree of fame which has come with that and has has that been challenging for you i mean we talked a bit at the top about you know social media and like the kind of scrutiny even if it's i mean it's not like you know, it's not like being a royal, a member of the royal family or anything, but like having any kind of scrutiny, it can be oppressive on the creative process. So how's that affected things for you? Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, the first time I really felt a sense of fame was after I more or less abandoned this new direction of working with vocalists and doing more pop leaning music I, I took a hard pivot at one point, uh, early 2010s, definitely around the time I was making music with Praveen as Sepulchre. And I'd, I'd moved to Berlin, like ba- basically had had some, you know, without getting too deep into it, had had some shady dealings with some people that I was working with in the industry and really left a bad taste in my mouth um, and made me want to kind of return back to just making instrumental music that wasn't really, I wasn't really trying to do anything more than make something for myself that was exciting for myself that didn't really have any rules applied to it. And, you know, I definitely got a taste of that through working with Praveen and, and, and doing the Sepulchre stuff and, and, you you know, you putting out the, our, uh, our first records on hot flush, um, made me excited to to make you know more instrumental genreless kind of stuff because that's really what it was i mean you know obviously the first like Lo- love pressure was very influenced by dubstep and had you know i think all the tracks were around 140 bpm and had had those kind of rules ap- uh, applied to it but at the same time you know me and praveen had our own years of experience in different genres and uh I, I feel like that's kind of what sepulchre became over time was um just a hybrid hybridization of all kinds of different genres and uh un, under one roof but yeah so doing that stuff with with praveen made me excited to you know ki- kind of experiment with that on my own as well and when i first put out uh when I put out Rooms on Planet Mew and then Vapor City on Ninja Tune, that was really the first time I felt like, even more so than working with pop vocalists, like the first time I actually felt a taste of of real fame. You know, the fact that I could go across the world and play a sold out show uh, headlining 
Um, and you know, that, that was really the first time that that happened for me. And also, you know, social media was becoming bigger and bigger at that time. So maybe before then, you know, there was MySpace or whatever, and which I guess is the first taste of like looking at numbers or whatever and seeing how many people are listening to your tracks. Cause yeah, they would have play counts on your my MySpace player. And oh like, yeah, the, the tyranny starts. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think maybe that's technically where a lot of that first started. But um, I think the the discourse element started more with Twitter and and Facebook um, later on. Um, but yeah, I I feel like the the first time I had to really check myself on the whole social media front was around the time I was putting out Vapor City and I was playing at South by Southwest and I had this run-in with Hannibal Barres and he, which without getting into it basically he like took a picture of a, a shirt that I was wearing while I was DJing that had like a stain on it uh and uh someone forwarded it to me uh, or some he said like RIP this guy's shirt and then <laughs> <laughs> which in retrospect is hilarious. Uh, but this is before Hannibal was, you know, a huge comedian, but he definitely had a cult following on Twitter and someone forwarded me his tweet. And I think I replied like, fuck you talentless prick or something like that. <laughs> like just very hastily. Actually, I, I was sitting eating lunch with Peter from Ninja tune. And, and it's my first time, like really, like hanging out with the Ninja Tune uh, family. Uh, and I'm here on a secret Twitter war, like oh, wh- while, while we're like befriending each other for the first time. And uh, we finished our lunch and then my entire Twitter had exploded with uh, his fan base, basically just attacking me and finding old press photos of me or like, it just making fun of how I looked and all kinds of, of crazy stuff, which uh, sent me into kind of a little spiral and panic attack situation. I mean, understandably, man. Yeah. Jeez. Those sorts of things are awful. Yeah. But the, the, the good news from it all is that, um, you know, it, it definitely made me shift the way that I, you know, it, it dealt with social media, especially trolls or anything like that. And, knowing to take a beat before you know reacting just reacting being a a big learning lesson and also you know me and Hannibal have actually become friends over the years and uh have uh, yeah we ended up making a track last year together (laughs) okay well that's that's a happy ending to the story yeah (laughs) yeah, totally (laughs) okay well um you talked a bit about sepulchre just then and I think let's just um let's just go back to that sort of post-dubstep era we talked a bit about this um with roscoe on the show um and it's kind of agreed that it's it was a super interesting period and I, I guess i would i guess i would sort of see it as being sort of 2009 to 2012 or so that sort of time which is a ridiculously yeah. short space of time but it felt like they say right before everybody started making house music oh well yeah <laughs> I mean, I think that's <laughs> precisely what we said on that podcast yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so i mean let's just so let's let's just focus on that a little bit because i mean what you did with that project with Praveen was was awesome and Thanks. um 
Oh yeah, it really was, and and there were so many interesting sort of musical inputs that went into like that contributed to it. Like you know, from obviously there was a dubstep thing, but also the f- like footwork was a huge part of it, mm. and also the kind of house and techno thing mm-hmm. um, had it was sort of bubbling underneath it all. So like yeah, just talk, tell me a little bit about how how that project came together, and you know, working with Praveen and and, and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know again like me and Praveen had known each other for years uh before we started Sepulchre and had thrown events together he was throwing the percussion lab events which I should have brought up earlier um those were amazing we would do rooftop parties together and um very eclectic lineups but uh very raw you know bring a uh, a sound system on, on a rooftop and see who would show up kind of thing um and you know posting flyers and posters all over the city uh like new york style um but yeah so we we had developed a you know a a great friendship and a a musical respect for each other over the years and i can't remember at what point we finally decided to collaborate on a or what the i mean i do remember when we first made tracks together but i can't exactly remember what the you know, the reasoning was behind it to, to get more serious than any sort of jams that we had done in the past. But I think, you know, we were both definitely very excited about what was going on with dub war, uh, and, and the, uh, just dubstep in general. And, and I, I think it was the first time I had really, and, and maybe even Praveen had, you know, made music where bass was kind of one of the most important elements, you know? And, and I think, having that uh as as sort of the the anchor behind everything was a huge turning point for me stylistically and i think it's something that has stuck with me ever since um just the importance of of bass weight and 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 how it it fits in the mix and how it sounds in the club and how an entire tune can be carried just by a bass line you know i'd never really experimented with that before so I think between that and the sort of rules of, you know, BPM wise hovering between 135 and, you know, 145, like ha- having those rules in place allowed us to kind of experiment and add our own flavor to to the beats and 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 to our productions which, you know, weren't necessarily like heard and dubstep but um you know it was it was exciting to experiment with that kind of stuff and and mess around with like r&b acapellas basically stuff that you would hear a lot in like house music uh like flipped uh defected records kind of acapellas and stuff like that um old like r&b tunes um and and being able to bring that into more of a dubstep uh, context. I, I think we were even joking, jokingly calling it love step because it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we were, we, we, you know, we're making stuff that was definitely he- heavy on the bass side of things, but we equally melodic and soulful at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like you were just having an extremely good time exactly. making it and, and the show's the shows were the same and you guys, the photos of you guys on stage are just <laughs> <that's> heartwarming, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah we were having a blast uh yeah i mean you know it's it's funny like having a friendship for so long and then being able to 
like develop your friendship in this collaborative sense and and almost finding new love for each other through through doing that and performing in front of people and being able to be silly and uh, in front of crowds and i think you know having that uh those years before of doing the cassette nights and doing percussion lab events together where you know we would be playing in front of smaller crowds but it was mo- it was mostly about us just having fun and you know just sharing new music with each other and with the people that came to the show so by the time we had started doing sepulchre we had already had that kind of uh fun excitement uh shared between each other yeah i remember you guys um i think i think praveen came to berlin to mix the album is is that am i am i remembering that right you'd already moved over and i think he came over just to to mix it is that right yeah for the fir- the first album we we had spent one week in new york uh basically making the tracks and we spent another week in berlin mixing them at uh miguel de pedro's studio uh kid 606's studio in berlin really it was only a week of writing and a week of mixing is that all it was that's all it was wow yeah wow man yeah definitely the fastest we've uh, either of us have ever made a record that's incredible, man. It really is. Cause it's- a lot of it had to do with the the limited time. You know, I I just moved to Berlin and, you know, obviously our records were doing well on, on Hot Flush and, you know, you had keen interest in us doing an album and, you know, at the time doing online collaborative stuff wasn't as easy, especially, you know, I wasn't a big plug-in guy. Definitely am now, but at the time I was like very much so... Uh, Ableton factory plugin kind of wizard, <laughs> whereas Praveen was getting all the latest um, plugins all the time. So we would do uh, up until that point, we were doing a- any uh, tracks that we made together, we were making in Praveen's studio because not only the plugins, but you know, he had the, the roads in there and the Monopoly and uh, Poly 6, um, you know, a few different analog synthesizers and so there's a bunch of um acoustic guitar on that album as well isn't there yeah yeah which um you know it was definitely something that i had you know played guitar on my own work in the past so being able to have that on the sepulchre tunes was um you know it was inevitable I mean, it really worked, to be honest, on the record. And it's one of the things that makes it really stand out from from the previous stuff as well. It really makes the album kind of like distinctive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think we... we and, and Praveen plays guitar on some of the tunes as well. I don't mean to make it seem like I was the only one playing it. But um, yeah, I think um, it was really just us bringing... A, a lot of our influences all into one place, which was really special. Yeah, it was, it was super cool. So, I mean, that kind of brings me on to something else I want to talk about, which was just collaboration in general, because this has been a real feature of your musical output. It's your ability to collaborate and the you know quite wide range of collaborators that you've had. I mean, like, I mean, the other one that sticks out for me is, is Jimmy Edgar, but like, there's so many. So, tell me a little bit about a sort of a broad level how you how you approach collaborating with people because obviously it is it is different every time so so how do you go about it i think you know when it comes to producing or to um collaborating with other producers i feel like i de- it, it definitely helps already being friends and already having 
a sort of formed relationship and mutual respect for each other so that you can go in to the sessions just trusting each other and being able to step outside of your comfort zone, especially when you see someone else having their own unique production style and and making choices that you wouldn't normally make, you know, you don't want to stop them in their tracks and, uh, and, and interrupt any flow by any means. So, you know, having that mutual respect and and trust from the beginning definitely helps. Um, And, and it's definitely different when it comes to vocalists. I mean, I, I do enjoy, you know, having a, a, a vibe with a vocalist before I collaborate with them, you know, even if it's an, a, a new, so, someone I've never met before. And, you know, I, I like at least having, you know, an hour or two before the session where we're chatting and, or if anything, you know, like talking online or something like that, where we have some sort of banter and understanding of like where we're coming from and being able to share music back and forth and blah, blah, blah. But, um, yeah, I think over the years I've I've become more comfortable with working with new artists that I've never uh, worked with before, never even met until that day that I've gotten to the session. But uh, it's it, it took some time getting there for sure. I mean, that can be really challenging, actually, particularly with someone who's um, like relatively inexperienced. Like just getting someone to a point at which they can perform can be can be super challenging so do you have a kind of like I guess my question is like is there like a set process that you go through is there are there beats you need to hit to achieve that or like you know how does it work yeah I mean it really depends on the person um you know some some artists come into the studio just ready to work and they've they've they're a bit more removed and they're just ready to to hear you play them beats and they're like all right let's do that one you get the mic in front of them you're just looping the beat for forever and you know you, you could just sort of tell with certain people that they're not really there to to fuck around or to to have any small talk and you know i respect that for sure i think more my style is like yeah ha- having a chat before like kind of seeing where we are at like philosophically like if we like you know have any sort of um vibe as far as like you know the way we look at the world and or if we differ you know and see if we can learn from each other because I, I do like getting involved in the songwriting process but some vocalists prefer to kind of be in their own world so yeah it just depends from person to person I guess um there's there's no one trick that I have I think it's it's more so just being able to to read the room uh to like read like get a sense of what that person's vibe is before trying you know to kind of step into their process to or overstep i guess you know like some people just want to be left alone in 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 their process while while others want to be super involved and want you to be like going back and forth with them and which obviously i prefer but you know sometimes it's super easy to just sit there and play a beat and loop it and then they record the vocal and then you're done is it different when when you know a track's going to be like a machine drum track like do you have a different like do you think about it any differently then i mean is it are you a bit more like <laughs> like tyrannical about how you think want things to be done or like i mean how, how does it differ yeah i mean you know when you're working by yourself it's so insular you're doing things maybe like repeating yourself or doing like the tried and true kind of things or or maybe you're not and you're allowing yourself to experiment and do things that would maybe even be embarrassing 
in front of someone else because you're just like trying to learn a new tool or, you know, experiment with a piece of gear that you've never used before. And, you know, it's, it's maybe questionable as you're experimenting, but when you're collaborating with someone else, it's almost like you're, everybody's trying to impress each other in a way. I mean, me and Jimmy Edgar have talked about this, how when we're in the studio, we just have so much respect for each other that we're, and we're conscious of the time that we have together. It's so precious that, you know, we, when it's like our, our turn to step up to bat, you know, we're, we're basically trying to impress the other person with like what we're doing and kind of putting all of our skills to the test and, you know, uh, which is much different than when I'm working solo and kind of allowing allowing myself to have that space to make errors and and to learn new things and and whatever. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely different. Does that ever get like competitive? Yeah, but like in a friendly way, I think it's like oh yeah, I mean, that that can be good. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friendly competition for sure. Like kind of. Um, yeah, again, I think it's like when when someone else is there and you uh, and you know someone else is listening to what you're doing and your performance like whether you're like laying down a melody or programming a beat or you know even down to the mixing level of things and like EQing and like making drums really pop in the mix and stuff like that you like when you know someone else is in that room sharing that space with you l- listening along you're so, like hyper conscious of what you're doing and i think that can be really beneficial you know to your work yeah i mean it, it absolutely can i mean it can be it can be quite difficult as well sometimes i find but mm. like it can certainly when you get that dynamic right i mean it certainly forces you to like i guess bring your a game you know yeah i mean and and also you know like for example with the with our first album with uh the first jets album we spent two days just fucking around basically and like experimenting on the modular and just recording a bunch of sounds and not really making tunes. Uh, We just wanted to essentially create a library of sounds for us to use for the album. And so it allowed us to scratch that itch of messing around and learning gear and, 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 and just, making noises so that when we actually got down to it to making songs that um it was more like okay it's game time yeah i mean that's some, that is sometimes the best part of, <laughs> of the writing process isn't it like just having that space to mess around and just like yeah make cool noises yeah because that's the substance of of what you're working with really and you know if 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 you're conscious of the time that you have together, it's like, okay, we only have four hours in the studio. Let, you know, you don't want to be sitting there messing around with the kick tone for too long, you know, or, or like how, how, how much your snare slaps. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can, it can be important, but you know, that's why we spent those two days, like making sure we had all the sounds dialed in and, and, um, before we we got going yeah i was was watching that metallica documentary the other week and they talking about spending two weeks on getting the snare sound right oh my god (laughs) just totally fried brain sounds about right yeah yeah. well i mean in fairness they got a good snare sound on that album anyway obviously it was the the legendary bad snare sound on the subsequent album but um (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) well exactly so maybe you know it was time well spent anyway anyway um there's a last area that I want to want to cover, 
And it's a key area, I think, for for you in particular, because well, we've talked about, you know, your you know, your kind of work as a producer and we've touched a little bit on, you know, touring and being a, you know, sort of musician kind of out there as it were. But it seems to me that like a really, really key part of your the whole you know, the whole of your career and the whole of your musical output has been your albums. And like particularly the way you've approached I guess world building for want of a better term mm. there, which I think is a really cool kind of thing and a really cool aspect to, you know, your kind of creative output. And it's something which is something I guess you build on top of music. It's it's not, it, it's related, but it, it um, requires a, a sort of different depth of thinking. But I mean, the albums thing is, a, is an area that we've touched on in every episode of this mm. pod so far. And everyone... I mean, it's it's funny because like, this, despite what people say about the the format generally, and despite the, I, I guess sort of relative decline of its importance, it's still a really key thing mm-hmm. for musicians generally, and and it seems to be like a a real point of aspiration even for younger musicians. And I wondered, I wonder why you think that is for a start is it just a wider you know palette um, or a wider canvas rather just the opportunity to do something more or is it something else to it and then and then we'll get into like you know how you approach albums and stuff but just at just at the top like how do you see that kind of um appeal of albums yeah i really i i think it depends on you know how you get into music your entry way into music in the first place you know like for me personally, growing up listening to albums and not even knowing what an EP was or kind of understanding what a single was, but not really being interested in anything outside of an album, you know, had a lot to do with my musical foundation and understanding of like what a body of work was compared to like each individual song, especially growing up in the 90s. Like, of course, you had your big hits that were on MTV or, and whatnot. But, you know, you didn't have this um, culture of like Spotify where you, or, or whatever, where you're just quickly ingesting songs as, as they come in and maybe even not even listening to the whole song. You know, e- even in the early days of like Napster and, and file sharing, um, there, there was this sense of, I don't know, disposability of individual songs and in, in, in a way where I, I remember, you know, I, I would be hanging out with a friend and they would be playing me music, but just skipping through the tracks and, and then going on to another artist and just skipping through that. And whereas, you know, when I first started listening to, to music with, with friends, we would just put on an album and listen to it front to back. And, yeah, maybe mm. when we were in the car, like we pop in a CD and skip to our favorite song. But, you know, the the song itself was like part of that album experience. And and if anything, like it, it was even listening to that individual song by itself, you're just sort of transported into just a glimpse of, of that album and, and the world that whatever artists created. And so, yeah, I think that stuck with me foundationally. And I I can't really speak to why people would listen to albums now, you know, and knowing that younger generations 
have all this music at their fingertips and can skip around between artists and decades of music and influences and underground stuff and just like all like within 15 minutes can span a whole genre uh just by you know quickly skipping around in songs um and you know the way people the people's attention spans are so different now that um yeah i'm i i again i can't speak on whether or not albums are as effective to these days and not even with younger generations i mean just you know attention spans in general have changed uh with my generation and older generations of course with you know all all the new technology and whatnot um so yeah it's it, for me personally i feel like albums are a real representation of an artist's intent and and kind of a, a time capsule in a way of like being able to to look at where somebody's head an artist's head was at a certain point in time and um i think that that is the the only way you can really capture that is by doing an album because if you've only got a cup a handful of songs uh that are put out you know separately and it's it's harder to see the through line you know when when every when things are separated in that way we and we just have this um maybe we we unconsciously want to see the connection between different songs and and albums help us do that yeah yeah that's 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 an interesting way of putting it i think you're right in that it's when an album is made in the traditional way i.e it's made all together and you know within the same sort of set of sessions and there's a very obvious um like there's a very obvious kind of sonic locus to it then it really does give a, a kind of window into the kind of mind of of you know the key people who are involved in making it mm. um in a way that is super illuminating when you're thinking about someone's the, the way someone makes music and the way they think about it i mean and it, it's really interesting to like track the progression of albums of artists as well which is a real kind of can be a real kind of like narrative arc there i mean you've released quite a lot of records actually over the years yourself i think it's fair to say rooms was a key one mm. Um, and I mean, the one that I picked out when doing a little bit of prep for this was, was Vapor City because that's, it's basically a concept album that, right? Yeah. In the kind of, in the, in the best progressive rock sense of the word. So (laughs) let's just talk about rooms quickly. Obviously it got the, the infamous five out of five in, in RA, um, when, when, uh, (laughs) when reviews still meant something. (laughs) So what was, (laughs) what was, um, tell me a little bit about that. And it was on Planet Mew, of course. So, um. Yeah, was it, was that the only record you did on Planet Mew, or was there another one? I'm I, getting that completely I, wrong. I did an EP with them, but yeah, it was kind of like a. I think it was like the EP leading up in, into the Rooms album, and then we did like a deluxe version uh, with some B sides and remixes. But um, yeah, um, that was around the time. Yeah, I was talking about um, you know, being really excited about working on music with Praveen and just having this new love and understanding for bass heavy music and 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 kind of having that be a focus or 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 maybe not even a focus but more added importance into my tracks where there was an awareness of like okay where is the bass sitting in this like how is how are people going to react when the bass hits in the club and it was also the first time I started consciously putting intros into my tracks where you know there was some sort of build up and not just unleashing 
everything right from the beginning as I had been doing up to that point. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, Rooms definitely captured that time. It was, it was a transition. I think half the tracks were written during my last year in New York. And then the other half were written when I first moved to Berlin. And also I was, I believe I was on tour and working on, on tunes a lot. Uh, at the time I had put out some records with Lucky Me that were definitely more DJ friendly. And, you know, I played like my first show at Sonar at a Lucky Me showcase. Um, and that I think was a, a huge point for me where I realized that, you know, I, uh, that making more instrumental kind of music uh, was, you know, like I could see a, a way forward with that as compared to, um, you know, making the kind of popular stuff that I was doing before that. But uh, anyhow, yeah. So rooms definitely captured that, um, sort of sepulchre era of production kind of discoveries that I was making at the time and more dirty, filtered out kind of darker more depressed even sounding stuff than i had been doing before like um there was definitely like a darker element to it and messing around with vocals in a new way whereas before i definitely thought of vocals as an instrument uh but if anything it was more of like more abrasive and more cut up and and just definitely not as subtle as the approach that i had with uh, rooms where things were a bit more filtered out and used. I, I was more focused on the tone of a voice and creating atmospheres as compared to just really wild edits and and glitches and stuff like that. So yeah, ro mm -hmm. rooms was um yeah a, a a big turning point for me. Was that a turning point in the your your view of your own music? Yeah, I think so. I, I I think I had a certain validation that my music didn't need, you know, features or anything like that to, you know, have other like lots and loads and loads of people get excited about it. And for me to be able to tour and, you know, play big rooms and uh, yeah, just um, yeah, get, gave me a new sense of validation for sure. Yeah. And then... um like Vapor City was the first record on Ninja Tune, who you signed to mm -hmm. in the aftermath, I guess, of, of Rooms. Yeah. And as I said, that was a, a full-on, like, three-dimensional experience, I guess. Um, were you aware that you were, you, you were setting out to, like, make that sort of, like, was, was, was it that sort of project from the very beginning, I guess is what I'm asking? And, and how did it pan out? Yeah, I think there was this discovery period in rooms, pure experimentation within this new kind of language that I had uh, found. And it was also the first rooms was the first album that I'd made completely in Ableton. No, that's a lie. There's a couple of tracks where I added a couple of um, elements uh like from impulse tracker but anyway <laughs> i would consider vapor city a kind of refinement period i had discovered this new direction that i wanted to go with my music with rooms and really start, started to dial it in uh with vapor city and uh basically yeah just just kind of pull everything together a bit more and um and 
have more of a direction with it, I think, and be less, um, maybe a little less risky than rooms, but at the same time, trying to capture that, um, that, that same sort of spirit that I had discovered with rooms. Did moving to an industry affect the way that you were thinking about it at all? I mean, obviously moving to a, moving to a new label can be, um, well, it, it can affect the creative process a bit in terms of like different pressures and different you know relationships with A&Rs and all, all that stuff. So what kind of a part did that play, if anything? Initially, it was super easy. I mean, to be fair, uh, Planet Mew wanted to put out Vapor City and I had been going back and forth with Mike Paradinas about the track order on Vapor City he was kind of pointing out right because he's very he's very hands-on isn't he with with A&R stuff I know from a few different very people. much so and you know I think it was a bit different than my experience with Ninja Tune has been more like you know I've had to develop a respect for the A&Rs over time as compared to already having this initial huge amount of respect for Mike Paradinas especially you know being a fan of his music since I was in high school. Um, so allowing him to kind of say, uh, yeah, this one's good. This one's shit. This like literally saying, yeah, it's a bit shit in it. And me being like, Whoa, okay. And like if anybody else had said that to me, I would probably drop them right off the bat. But, you know, having him say that to me actually made me laugh. Um, and and uh, I don't know, it was it was kind of exciting for me, but also gave me a, a different kind of perspective of like, you know, what he saw in me and like what what jumped out to him. So anyway, he he definitely had a big part in putting together what initially was Vapor City. So that whole transition to Ninja Tune ended up being super easy. Um, I basically just handed them the album and was like, here, this is it. Oh yeah. right, right, okay. So was I mean, was that a? Well, I mean, how was Mike about that? Was I'm presumably not too happy about it. I mean, I gave him first option. I was like, you know, basically coming down to like the scope of what Ninja Tune could do versus what Planet Mew could do, and just talking about you know the advantages. I mean, he completely understood that, um, you know, he wasn't able to compete. Um, was and de- definitely there was no bad blood um there at least <laughs> to to <laughs> to my knowledge um but yeah so super appreciative of him and and sort of getting me on that path and making the transition to ninja tune pretty painless okay so last couple of questions we just talked about a couple of your albums but what's 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 the favorite album that you've been involved with <laughs> what's your favorite album that you've been involved with that's so hard What's your favorite? What's your favorite <laughs> child? Um, uh, I don't know. I think like whatever I'm working on currently is is always the most exciting for me. You know, like I'm I'm I've j- finished a T Stewart album last year, um, which will be the second T Stewart album, and it's coming out on Mercury KX uh, April fifteenth, and so that's kind of my world right now, and I'm just. So that's all I can like really think of, but I guess, yeah, they're all just so different and, and, and favorite for different reasons. You know, I, I look back at each album as a different milestone and different learning period for me. And, you know, I, I could see like 
the kind of discoveries that I was making at each point and how each of those discoveries have stuck with me to this day. And yeah, it's hard to, to say. I mean, I, I guess Vapor City would have definitely been probably one of the most pivotal points in my career where, you know, I started playing like the biggest shows of my life, started making the most money I've ever made while at the same time making music that I didn't consider, you know, I did the aim wasn't making money. <laughs> um, and uh, which was interesting to me because, you know, I, I, in, in the back of my head when I was writing one, two, one, two, I was like, you know, if this goes off, like I could be fucking rich from this thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so definitely there was, there was a little bit of that in my head at the time, but you know, I mean, once I let go of all of that and kind of just purely focused on making something that was purely for excitement's sake and like, uh, you know, not really career centered, of course, ironically ended up being like one of the biggest moments of my career. Um, so I think if, if we, <laughs> if we defined favorite based on experiential aspects i think probably vapor city had the most kind of things and related to that you know as far as developing a big concept for the album uh producing limited edition vinyl that had a 10 page art book in the middle you know doing a like concept with the with Weirdcore for the live show. Weirdcore's um he he does most of Aphex Twins uh live visuals, developing a a whole like show concept with him where he more or less recreated Vapor City into like a first person shooter kind of looking video game world. Um and having that and working with a drummer. And, and playing instruments on stage and just having the super developed live show. I, th- I think like all of those aspects combined, you know, would, would have made that probably like the biggest learning and experiential kind of moment for me out of all of my albums. Although working on one, two, one, two and like working with vocalists, like that was its own experience too. So it's really, it's really fucking hard to say, man. Yeah, it's an impossible question, yeah. I realize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um it's a good one to ask though. So finally, give me some some other albums that you like from other people. <laughs> give me give me a few, throw me a few. <laughs> just off the top of your head. Not not asking you for your all-time favorite albums, just just some albums that are you uh, you know, that are influential on you and uh, you know, you go back to. Yeah. I mean, it it's just funny like it, it makes me think back to that time we were up all night uh, in your apartment in Berlin, <laughs> listening to Guns N' Roses, and that somehow led to Orbital. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we both found that we had a very similar upbringing influentially. Um, you know, I was huge into Smashing Pumpkins. I think that was like one of the first times, like A Siamese Dream was the first time I really like started to think about what an album is and and hearing how they there's these like subtle little uh blending between tracks where if you turned up the volume all the way you could hear like these these little sounds and the and they would like blend into the next track and that was like 
just like some fun ear candy for me that I, but but just hearing mm. like um like a story being told over an entire album like that was really huge for me with that album i think uh god what else i mean hearing like when i finally figured out what album second bad bible belonged on <laughs> that that was a huge point for me uh, buying try repete which was like that double album which i guess the second technically second bad bible vilbel whatever was uh part of a ep that they did but they ended up including as like the second cd for that album but that was just such a vibe and and um i think it was like that that was a huge one for me uh, Richard D. James album. I just loved how it was sh- so short and all the songs just like went by in a flash and just made you want to listen to the whole thing again. And there was just, just no other music like it. Um, that that album was huge for me. Um, Square Pusher Feed Me Weird Things was a big one. Yeah, I mean, there was just this big period of time where Warp Records was kind of dominating my ears for year for the uh, for like probably the late 90s or early 2000s where i was obsessed with anything that they were putting out and and I, and also i think the first time i started recognizing the importance of a record label as well and um like keeping you know my attention on what a label is putting out a lot of thrill jockey stuff as well from that period of time tortoise tnt c and a uh, f- few of the c and cake albums sam precop his um solo album is phenomenal it's still like one of my top five favorite albums i would say um violins true which is more on the sort of like indie rock side of things um that they're amazing. That album I could listen to a billion times and never get tired of it. Um, I ended up working with uh, George Elbrecht, who's um, the leader of that project. Uh, worked with him on my last EP, which was a, a huge dream come true for me. Yeah, man. I mean, we could go on for hours here. Like, oh, uh, oh, another another good one. Underworld, second toughest against the infants. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or a second toughest in infants? What is that? Second toughest in the infants is from called. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that one and dub no bass with my head, man. They're just like full solid albums from front to back. Just that just took you on journeys, you know. I went back to um the first one recently and it still sounds great. It really does. It really does. Yeah, I was listening to it driving around in San Francisco last week. Yeah, awesome. Okay, man. Well listen, um, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great. Bro, it's it's been really good. I mean, you know, I feel like it's a bit one sided. I wanna like <laughs> no, it, it makes me wanna like hang out with you and uh catch up with you, see what you've been up to. Well, it's been too long, man. We should definitely do that at some point. I'm gonna be over uh your way out, I think, hopefully later in the year. So um yeah, it'll be great to catch up properly in person. Absolutely, man. Well thank thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah, that was machine drum and you can probably tell that i enjoyed having that conversation was um there was some laughing that uh that went on more than usual probably but um yeah travis and i go go back a long way and 
we haven't hung out really that much at all in the last few years so it was great to um spend a couple of hours or the best part of a couple of hours chatting to him so before we go a couple of things to cover release wise this friday 4th of march um we have two remixes coming out on two sister labels to hot flush so on rhythm nation records we have cc remixing dart track entitled tonic ice cc is a really talented woman from dublin ireland also the home of dart uh so yeah that's on rhythm nation and on who whom the next release following my scb one um is by bm6 we're welcoming him into the fold for the first time so he's got a ep entitled liminal trek coming later in march but there's a single taken from that ep coming on friday the fourth entitled enthusiasta so get involved with that he's super talented i love his stuff been playing loads of his tunes in my sets over the past few years and it's great to have him on who whom and affiliated with hot flush he released a great album with ben sims on his label last year but um yeah he's he's moving over <laughs> to us for for a bit anyway we'll have him sticking around for a while i hope so yeah that's also out friday 4th of march um okay so as i mentioned at the top we've got this uh nft auction uh to raise money for the people of ukraine starting for it's it's going for 24 hours um starting today first of march apologies if you've missed it but um yeah i just had to get it done so um yeah the track on the nft scuba's on-chain mix of hang 10 is not going to be coming out anywhere else uh, i played it on my her set a few weeks ago and you'll hear me playing it out but it's not going to be released because well i just don't want to put it anywhere else other than NST. So, um, yeah. So let's hope we uh, raise some good money from the auction of that. It's my first foray into the NFT world, um, having been a crypto um, speculator, as it were, um, since 2017. So, yeah, let's see how it goes. And fingers crossed the events that I described at the top of the show aren't going to go on for too much longer. Okay, so... Leave us a review or a rating, really does help. Join us in the Discord, check the uh, show notes for an invite to that Discord server. Um, there is also a Spotify playlist, which I keep forgetting to plug, which contains all the music discussed on the show, as well as the show episodes. That's a good way to follow the show generally. Instead of following the um, you know, the actual show on Spotify, just follow the playlist and you'll get the, um, get the shows as they come up, plus all of the music that we discuss or at least a good lot of it anyway um yeah all right i think we're done for the week it's um been a pretty stressful few days uh as i'm sure it has been for you probably well very possibly more than me but yeah let's just keep our fingers crossed and this thing will be over as quickly as possible so i've been scuba this has been the not a diving podcast and i will check you next week on the show
podcast. Let's go. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.